Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by SAGE. Building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Veris Age Institute colleague, Ed Kless. And on today's show, folks, we're honored for the second time we have the economist Dan Mitchell. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Going great. Can't wait to talk to Dan again. Me too. Let me read his bio. Dan, Dan Mitchell is co-founder of the Center for Freedom and Prosperity and the Center for Freedom and Prosperity Foundation. He's one of the nation's leading experts on tax reform and supply-side tax policy. I can vouch for that. I've been following him for years. He's got a PhD in economics from George Mason, and he was a senior fellow with the Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation, and an economist for Senator Bob Packwood and the Senate Finance Committee. Dan, welcome back to the Soul of Enterprise. I'm glad to be with you all. Awesome. Uh, Dan, I just saw before we went live, literally, uh, the Republicans just walked out on the negotiations on the debt ceiling. I know we will, but should Congress raise the debt ceiling? I think they should, uh, because you would have you wouldn't have default. I don't think if they didn't raise it, because uh, the Treasury Department, I'm sure, would prioritize, which is just a term meaning that uh, of the dollars that come in in tax revenue, they would devote them first to paying off the debt, and then they would decide how to allocate them beyond that. So. So unless an administration actually wanted the country to default, there would not be a default. That being said, it's not the smartest or most mature or adult way to budget. Uh, I'm much more concerned about changing the long run trajectory of government spending through legislation, reforming entitlements, uh, things like that. Uh, I I don't think uh, uh, prioritization is a good long run strategy. It's just the way that you would get through if you didn't have an increase in the debt ceiling. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about that because, um, you know, I, I remember what Melton Friedman used to say about he'd rather live in an economy that's got a $1 trillion deficit with $3 trillion in spending rather than $6 trillion with a budget surplus or zero. Um, because the true cost of government is the spending, isn't it? Yeah, our, our number one problem is not reading. Uh, I don't like deficits. I don't like debt. But the most important thing to understand is that deficits and debt are merely symptoms of what the real problem is, which is too much government spending. Every dollar of government, whether you're financing it by taxes, borrowing or printing money, every dollar of government spending represents resources being taken out of the productive sector of the economy. And since government does not spend money as wisely or as intelligently as the private sector, That's what puts a drag on growth and prosperity. Now, of course, if you tax money out of the private sector, that hurts in a certain way. If you borrow money out of the private sector, that hurts in a different way. And if you print money to finance big government, that's going to hurt the economy in an entirely different way. So all the different ways of financing government are painful. But the key thing to remember is that government spending in and of itself is not good for growth and prosperity. We don't want to be a sluggish economically anemic European-style welfare state. 
you have a golden rule that you wrote about that you want to ensure that the government spending over time grows more slowly than the private economy. Could, could we theoretically grow our way out of this problem? In the long run, if you fulfill what I call my fiscal policy golden rule, which is to have the government grow slower than the private sector, if you maintain that for a long period of time, by definition, you are going to reduce the burden of government spending measured as a share of GDP or you know, economic output, G gross domestic product. Uh, and if you're reducing the burden of government measured that way, 99 times out of 100, you're also going to be reducing red ink, uh, deficits and debt. Uh, in all likelihood, you'll relatively quickly uh, get to a balanced budget and then a budget surplus. Maintaining spending restraint over time is probably the number one challenge uh, that modern governments have. The only country that I think does a really admirable job in that regard is Switzerland, because they have something that voters adopted called a debt break, but it's really a spending cap. And ever since voters put that in, uh, they voted for it in 2001, 84.7% uh, voted for it in Switzerland. Ever since then, the annual growth of government spending has only averaged, I think, 2.3% a year. That's a remarkable amount of spending restraint. And as a result, what's happened? Government debt in Switzerland has dropped significantly. So every other country in Europe, just about massive increases in red ink, massive increases in the burden of government spending. But because Switzerland has a spending cap that has worked so well constraining the burden of government spending, that has come down. I mean, Switzerland is just such a role model in terms of prudent fiscal policy uh, that, uh, heck, I, I wish we could somehow just transport Swiss politicians to America and then send ours over. Well, it would be an act of war to send our politicians to another country. But but at the very least, let's maybe send them to like, where, where did they exile Napoleon to? Was it uh, Elba or something like that? Uh, wherever they sent Napoleon to, that'd be a good place to send our Congress and president. Doesn't Switzerland's president like take the bus? You know, he just he's really just an average type of guy. Um, you know, you you don't like a balanced budget amendment and you've got a great I think a great point about it because it gives politicians an excuse to raise taxes. Well, let's look at it this way. 49 out of 50 states in the U.S. have some sort of balanced budget requirement. I mean, they're all different, uh, but, but the bottom line is California has a balanced budget requirement. Illinois does, New Jersey does, uh, New York does. I mean, all these profligate, high-tax, high-spend states have balanced budget requirements. Does that stop them from having big, wasteful governments? No. Uh, we just talked about Europe. Well, in the European Union, which Switzerland, thankfully, is not a member of, in the European Union, they have something called the Maastricht criteria, which, again, what's that focused on? Deficits and debt. Does that stop Greece and Italy and Spain and Portugal and France and Belgium from having big, bloated, high-tax governments? No. So I, I don't think... Uh, the, the, the spirit behind a balanced budget amendment is noble because we don't want politicians squandering money today and leaving the bills for the future. But in reality, what a balanced budget amendment seems to do is to give politicians a green light, an excuse to raise taxes, which does that ever work in controlling spending and reducing red ink? No. When you raise taxes, you wind up giving politicians an excuse to spend more money 
the economy grows slower, the combination of a weaker economy and more spending means that most of the time you wind up with even higher deficits and more red ink uh, following a tax increase. So I do not want to copy California. I do not want to copy France. Uh, the, as we've already talked about, the country to copy is Switzerland, and Switzerland focuses on controlling spending, not on controlling red ink. But because they do control spending, most years they have budget surpluses. And as I already said, their government debt levels are coming down as a share of GDP. So Switzerland is the role model, not France. You know, um, Trump's tax policies, it, it seems pretty, pretty good in, retro, in, in hindsight that Congress allowed the uh, individual tax provisions to expire, what, in 2026, but they kind of wrote the, the corporate ones in stone because they knew that, um, you know, Congress was more likely to change that. What do you think is going to happen with some of those individual tax provisions that are set to expire? That's a tough question because in order to answer it, we have to predict what's going to happen in the 2024 election because it'll be during calendar year 2025 in all likelihood that they make these these decisions about what will happen to the individual provisions of the Trump tax cut. Uh, if Republicans control everything, there's probably a decent chance they extend all the tax cuts. If Democrats control everything, then there's almost certainly uh, the uh, tax cuts uh, uh, for high-income people uh, will will expire, uh, and they'll maybe extend some of the tax cuts for modest-income people. Uh, as you already mentioned, the corporate tax reforms were made permanent, so it's, it's going to be an open question whether Democrats decide to launch in a sort of class warfare jihad against the business community in a global economy that just doesn't make sense, and I think privately, even some Democrats admit that. And then, of course, I haven't given the answer to the most likely outcome, which is, what if we have divided government? If we have divided government, then it's just like the Obama fiscal cliff. Uh, you know, People who were following politics about 10 years ago will know what that refers to. The Bush tax cuts were uh, scheduled to expire at the end of 2010. Uh, they were then extended for two years, and we had another fiscal cliff battle in 2012. And by and large, what happened is that some of the tax cuts for upper income people uh, expired, uh, but the tax cuts for ordinary people were made permanent, uh, which was not the ideal outcome. You want all the tax cuts to be made permanent, but it's probably a pretty good guide to what might happen in 2025. Dan, are the, this is a wonky question, but are the individual rates still indexed for inflation going back to the Reagan Act in 80 or whatever it was? Yeah, we still have indexing in our tax code, which does protect people from being pushed into higher tax brackets because of inflation. Now, the entire tax code is not indexed. So you can wind up you know, simply because of inflation, uh, some stock that you own may go up in value. Uh, and if you then sell that stock, you're going to pay tax on it, even if the tax was nothing but an inflationary gain. You may have actually lost money on your investment. But Uncle Sam from the IRS is still going to say, oh, no, on paper, you made a profit. So we're going to take, you know, 28 percent of it or whatever the, the tax bracket uh, might be for the taxpayer in question. Mississippi just passed a full expensing uh, bill for capital investments, R&D, machinery and equipment. Is that something that the Congress should do as well? This is another wonky issue, and just to 
give like a 30 second bit of background so uh so uh, listeners and viewers can understand it when a business invests money you know buys a new machine builds a new factory or something like that you would think that 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 amount of money they spent on investing could be deducted when calculating their taxable income uh, but unfortunately, instead of allowing what's called immediate expensing or full, dedu full deductibility of that expense, uh, companies are forced to depreciate over time that expense. Now, this is all very wonky and boring, but the, the net result of depreciation policies is that the, the, there's a tax on new investment, which is really insane because every economic theory, even, even socialism, even Marxism, they all agree that you can't have economic growth without investment. Now, you know, the, the socialists and Marxists are silly. They think government can do the investing, but everyone agrees you have to have investing. And yet our tax code actually says if you invest money as a business, we're going to impose a heavier tax on that than if you simply, you know, spend it on paper clips or, or whatever. Uh, so in other words, paper clips get fully expensed. Workers' wages get fully expensed. And by the way, that's the right policy. But unfortunately, new investment doesn't get fully expensed or, again, just deduct it when calculating what the taxable income is of a business. So Mississippi made the right decision by going to full expensing. We periodically flirt with that. We have accelerated depreciation. We have partial expensing. We have all these policies in Washington. But the smart thing is just not to have gimmicks, just have immediate Full expensing for all business uh, investments. If a business brings in $20 of revenue and they spend $19 on all their various expenses, what's their taxable income? $1. Uh, and you can, you can make those millions if you want, you know, just whatever example you want to give. Obviously, the, 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 the taxable income of that country, of that company is not $2, but that's what depreciation policies do. They force a company to undercount their investment expenses when calculating their taxes. That's a really foolish policy. You know, uh, and, and for the life of me, I don't understand why even left wing politicians should realize that you're shooting your economy in the foot by having such a policy. Well, Dan, this is great. This, um, I knew it was just flying by. And uh, folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Do check out our Patreon channel where you can get our bonus episodes and that you can find at patreon.com slash TSOE. And of course, that channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. Be kind to your mind. Hire one. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now.
Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with Dan Mitchell. You can see some of his stuff at freedomandprosperity.org as well as his blog called International Liberty, which is at Daniel J. Mitchell. WordPress.com. And Dan, I have to say that you are one of the most pleasurable guests to prepare for because all we really need to do is go to your blog. You blog almost every single day, if not every day, on a variety of subjects. So we just, it's just a, just love to talk to you about all these. I'm going to, I don't even have to go back to just May to, to, for, for, to ask my questions. There's a plethora of topics. Uh, the first one I want to ask you about is um, we, we're hearing a lot about AI. And of course, the conversation with AI always spins over over to basic income. The AI are going to take over the world. Nobody's going to have to work anymore because the bots are going to do everything for us. And you wrote an interesting post on the horrendous tax implications of basic income. But before you talk about that, talk about why you are overall against the basic income from a a foundational level. I worry that if government says to everyone, we're going to give you money, enough money to live on, and in some cases, the proposals you're talking a good amount of money to live on and you don't have to work. I worry that a lot of people are going to say, okay, I'm not going to work. It's more fun to sit on the couch and watch prices, right? Reruns or something like that. Uh, So in other words, when I look at basic income, I think about the horrible effect that the welfare state has had on low income Americans, luring them out of the labor force, uh, incentivizing the creation of single parent households. I mean, the the welfare state has been terrible, not just for taxpayers, but it's been terrible for poor people. And I view basic income as as just the welfare state on steroids. Now, defenders of the welfare state, including there are some libertarians and they make some decent arguments. One of the problems with the welfare state is that uh, if you start working and earning money, you lose benefits. So there's an implicit marginal tax rate on work uh, as you try to climb out of the trap of welfare dependency. With basic income, you don't lose money as your income grows. So in theory, a basic income you know, the, from the proponents, they would say, oh, no, no, it simply gives everyone a floor of income, and then they'll still have an incentive to go out and earn money. And, and maybe for 80% of the population, that's true, but I don't want to throw away 20% of the population. But in terms of the fiscal consequences of basic income, there was just a study that I wrote about that you obviously read the column uh, from a, a, a German uh, a think tank or university, I forget uh, which it was exactly, but they looked at the implications of a basic income for Germany and, and they said, okay, well, what if we finance it with a flat tax? And, and you were talking about enormously expensive additional burden uh, on the taxpayers of Germany. So think about it. 
If you don't work, the government will give you a big pile of money. If you do work, we're going to tax you at like, you know, 65% or more. I'm just doing the math. <laughs> and the math is pretty clear. You know, you, you, you go one direction and work, the government hits you over the head over and over again with a club. You go to the other direction, you don't work, and the government gives you money to sit on your couch and watch Magnum PI reruns. I just don't think it makes sense. Yeah, 66.1% was the actual number. A mere 66.1% of, yeah, crazy. Yeah, and you're right. It was, it was actually, you, you were right on both counts. It was the Institute of Economics and Law at the University of Stuttgart. So there you go. It was both places together. Yeah, and uh, of course, Charles Murray, I think, was one of the libertarians that you're talking about. He does say, though, that the, in order to do basic universal basic income, the first thing to do is get rid of all other taxes. And I think he's also got a proposal for, to keep it at, I think it's 18 or 20%, something like that. But who knows? <laughs> So um, next up, uh, love this column that you did for May 4th on, on Chinese, uh, China's industrial policy. And you know, I think everybody thinks that, that, that China is cooking our, our, our clock, uh, clocking us uh, uh, hard economically, but that's just not the case anymore. They're, 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 they've got some real struggles over there. Talk a little bit about what your observations are on this. First, by way of background, China is much better off than they were under Mao. Under Mao, they had total communism and they had total misery. I mean, you, millions of people starving to death because of the horrible communist policies that existed under Mao. Uh, starting with, I think it was Deng Xiaoping in the late 70s, early 80s, they started to liberalize their economy a bit, uh, allowing some private property, private business to some extent. Uh, and as a result, China went from being one of the most miserably poor places on the planet to being a lower middle income country. But they're still way behind the United States. I mean, if you look at whether you're looking at IMF numbers or World Bank numbers, uh, OECD numbers, uh, the, the average American has four to six times more income than the average person in China. Uh, so, you know, we shouldn't be afraid that the Chinese tiger is really more of a paper tiger in terms of uh, overtaking the United States. Uh, on a per capita GDP basis. But then the purpose of the column was to point out that under President Xi, the dictator of China, policy is moving back in the wrong direction. He's imposing more government control. Uh, and, and, and to me, there's a pretty obvious relationship between the amount of economic freedom that exists in a, in a country and the economic performance of the country. And with China already not being economically free, I mean, yes, they did improve, but they improved from such a, a low level that they were still way behind the U.S., not just in terms of per capita GDP, but in terms of economic liberty. And now they're actually sliding backwards on economic liberty. So I, I just worry in the long run that China is in deep trouble. Their financial system is very much controlled by the government. Uh, if you're the son or daughter of a central party, uh, central uh, uh, Communist Party committee member, uh, that's how you get favorable terms from the uh, uh, banking system. Uh, but of course, that simply means it's cronyism and cronyism doesn't work very well. Capital is being allocated on the basis of political influence, not on the basis of what makes economic sense. So so I am count me as a long run pessimist on the Chinese economy. I just don't think it's going to do well in the future. I think they have a lot of fragility right now because of all the the debt that's been incurred to uh, steer capital uh, to the insiders in the in China, and uh, yeah, I, I hope I'm wrong because I think a prosperous China 
is probably more likely to morph into a free China and not a geopolitical adversary of the United States. So I want China to do well. I just don't think it's going to happen unless Xi decides that it's in his interest to follow economic liberalization. Yeah, he seems to be running counter to that, though. Uh, Ron and I, this week, when, when, when we talked, there's a new documentary out by the Acton Institute called The Hong Konger about what's happened to Jimmy Lai. And it's it was it just, just produced. And even they, they're talking about how Hong Kong has changed so much in the last six months to a year. Uh, and they're really freezing out capital investment because that's where it was all flowing into the country. So they're really shooting themselves in the foot from a Hong Kong perspective as well. Any Any thoughts on that? It's very depressing because for uh, all, all through my uh, adult life, Hong Kong has been a great role model, a great story about how free markets and limited government can lift people out of poverty. Uh, it's, a, it's a great story of upward mobility and economic dynamism. Uh, and actually, you know, for the first, uh, what, you know, 20 years after the British handover, uh, Hong Kong remained economically free. China was not intervening, but Unfortunately, in the last couple of years, uh, it's, I think, apparent to the world's investors that uh, if you invest in, in Hong Kong, you're really investing in China. And, uh, and a lot of investors simply don't trust that. Uh, and as a result, you know, the, that, that long run race that used to exist, you know, which is better, Singapore or Hong Kong, which is more economic freedom, which is more economically dynamic, I, I think. We now know the answer to that. Uh, Singapore is the place to be in the future. Hong Kong, just it can't be trusted because Beijing can't be trusted. And, and, and by the way, I say that knowing that as of today, Hong Kong still has a good tax system. As of today, Hong Kong still has a very small welfare state. There are a lot of good free market policies that exist in Hong Kong. But in terms of where are you going to make major investments, where are you going to put capital at risk? I just the, the data seems to indicate that people don't have a lot of confidence that Hong Kong will still be economically free. Uh, there's not a lot of confidence that those good policies I just listed are going to be maintained. And, uh, and that's really sad because Hong Kong was such a great story for how to bring people out of poverty into prosperity. Yeah, they seem to be reversing the rule of law as well. But unfortunately, we're up against our break here. Dan, this has been great. Great. We've got two more segments with you, but I want to remind our listeners that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Ron mentioned our Patreon channel, which is sponsored by 90 Minds, but also if at a certain level you can get a shout out like Blake Oliver did at Earmark CPE, check them out at earmarkcpe.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Radio.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Daniel Mitchell, the co-founder of the Center for Freedom and Prosperity. And Dan, the IRS just got, what, $80 billion in additional funding. Is this going to make them more effective? It'll make the IRS more effective at squeezing money out of small businesses and, uh, uh, and, uh, and individual households. Uh, the whole purpose of this was not to improve taxpayer service, as it's called. It was designed to increase audit rates. Uh, and who are the number one targets for audit rates? Well, it tends to be low-income people who take the earned income tax credit, since it's so easy to engage in fraud with that. And it tends to be small businesses, because the IRS just uh, automatically assumes if you file a Schedule C, you must be some sort of you know, tax cheat. Uh, and so that's where a lot of the enforcement resources are going to go. You know, Biden, of course, wanted people to believe, oh, this is just for wealthy corporations and uh, and people, you know, millionaires and stuff like that. But, but millionaires, first, they're probably smart, but even, even if they're not smart, they have smart lawyers and accountants and things like that. And the same thing with the uh, big companies. Big companies have very effective and intelligent people who are working on their taxes. And so, you know, when, when the IRS decides to audit a rich person or a big company, yeah, you know, most of the cases it winds up being a draw. Uh, you know, I, I guarantee you that the vast majority of Americans don't understand that Fortune 500 companies have IRS personnel on the ground uh, in the building, uh, you know, 365 days a year. Uh, a big corporation's tax return is sort of this iterative negotiated process with the IRS as the year goes along, uh, because again, you literally have IRS staff that have offices at big corporations and, you know, they wind up, you know, the big companies don't want to get in trouble. Uh, and yes, they will try to, of course, minimize their tax liability, but not in a way that gets them in any, uh, any legal hot water. And the IRS knows if they go after these rich people with good lawyers and accountants, or if they go after companies with all the lawyers and accountants, they're not going to get very far. It's the small businesses and ordinary households that wind up, uh, under the gun when the IRS has more resources. And, and that's not going to be good news or it's not going to be fun. Uh, if an American hasn't gone through an intensive audit, they have no idea the suffering and angst and misery that's going to bring about. Yeah. Is it true, Dan? I just read this. I forget from where some economists said this might've been Kevin Hassett, not sure, but he said that the compliance costs for the corporate income tax 
is as much as it raises in revenue for the government. Yeah, the, the Tax Foundation has all sorts of good research on that. And and when you're talking about the overall compli- compliance burden of the uh, of the income tax, uh, you know, I forget whether it was like two thirds of it or 60 percent of it. But but the majority, the easy majority of the compliance costs is because of the business tax system, not the tax uh, system for individuals. So so we as individuals, we might get frustrated by our 1040 forms and we're pulling our hair out and trying to figure out, are we doing this right? And and even with TurboTax, you know, we, we, we wind up not knowing for sure whether our, our tax returns are accurate. But we actually have it lucky because we don't have all the nightmarish provisions. I mean, we already talked earlier in the program about depreciation. I mean, there's a huge economic argument from re- for replacing depreciation with expensing. But you want to know what else? There's a giant tax compliance argument for simply having a cash flow-based tax system for businesses. Uh, you would wind up dramatically reducing the compliance costs. Now, obviously, in any given year, uh, you know, do the total compliance costs, are they greater or less than the amount of corporate income tax revenue? Well, corporate income tax revenue is very cyclical. When the economy is in recession, corporate income tax revenue drops like a stone. When the economy is growing well, corporate income tax revenue rises. So I don't want to make any sweeping statements about whether or not compliance costs are higher or lower, because frankly, it depends on the year. Uh, but I will say with 100% confidence, that we have a needlessly very expensive, complicated, unfair business tax system. And if we move to a cash flow-based system like you get under a flat tax, uh, not only would it be economically great news, uh, but it would dramatically reduce compliance costs uh, for both households and businesses. And talk to us about the tax gap. Is it the wealthy, uh, you've already sort of alluded to this, but is it the wealthy scamming it? Is it is it as big as they claim, and and how is it compared to other countries? And then I've got other questions about it, but I'll just let you give it your elevator pitch on the tax gap. Well, the IRS puts out some official estimates on the tax gap, and uh, I, I'm sure I don't have the latest year on the tip of my tongue, but uh, as of a couple of years ago, it was I think around four hundred billion dollars. Uh, now, the IRS, I believe, commissioner himself was up testifying, and all of a sudden, now you have these people on the left pulling $1 trillion numbers out of thin air. And and as far as I can tell, there is no economic research actually backing that. In other words, you know, they might as well have said $5 trillion. Uh, it's just a made-up number that they use to try to gin up support for dramatically expanding the IRS budget. The best research that's out there on internationally. Uh, there's a professor, I think it's the University of Linz in Austria, Friedrich Schneider. I mean, he's done work for places like the, I think it's the IMF and World Bank, where he does these sort of cross-country studies uh, based on things like currency and circulation. I mean, even things like nighttime light uh, uh, allow you to do estimates of what's the underlying amount of economic activity in a jurisdiction. And he shows that where do you tend to find high rates of tax compliance? you tend to find high rates of compliance in places with low tax rates. That makes perfect sense. I mean, if, if your tax rate is only 15%, your incentive to, to cheat or underreport your income is very low compared to if you live someplace where the tax rate is 60% or something like that. 
And so places like Hong Kong and Singapore and Switzerland historically have had very high rates of tax compliance, uh, whereas, of course, in the de developing world where everything is so corrupt, there are very low rates of tax compliance. But among other industrialized countries, uh, the higher the tax rate, the worse the tax compliance. And of course, there are cultural things too. Northern Europe has higher tax compliance than Southern Europe. But you know, getting to what you probably care about the most, the U.S. has relatively high tax compliance because compared to Europe, our taxes are lower. Uh, so I don't believe the IRS, I don't believe the Biden administration, uh, their numbers on tax compliance are grossly exaggerated. Why? Because they have a political incentive to do that. They want the IRS to be bigger and to have more power. And this idea that it's that, that Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are evading taxes, like you said, it, it, this is absurd. Where, where is, if there is a tax gap, do we know where it's coming from in terms of like income stratas? The tax gap almost certainly is more likely to be more prevalent in cash-based businesses. And, and, and I, I said before that the IRS considers everyone with a Schedule C a potential tax cheat. Well, statistically, there is some basis for that. If you have, if you're filing your business taxes using the 1040 and the accompanying Schedule C, uh, well, you, you do have some ability to, to declare as a business expense things that are you really, you are using and buying for household purposes. Uh, and you might have some ability with uh, you know, cash income uh, to let some of it slip out of the cash register. So I'm not saying that everyone obeys the taxes perfectly, even if tax rates are low, some people might decide to underreport. What I am saying is that there's a statistical relationship, the higher the tax rates, the greater the level of non-compliance. And so for economic reasons, primarily, that's why I want tax rates to be low, but also, if you believe in and you want and you care about tax compliance, that's a big reason to keep tax rates low as well. And also the code simpler. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we had Brian Dimitrovic on and he wrote the book Taxes Have Consequences. And all those graphs that you see about tax revenue percentage of GDP, it's like 18 or 19 percent. It looks like a dead guy's heart monitor. Um, no matter what the tax rates are, as high as 90% or 28%, whatever they are, it seems like the government still raises the same amount of money relative to GDP. Well, the, the most important thing to understand with regards to that, to, to those numbers, because in some sense, those numbers are right, but in another sense, they're wrong. The federal government in the U.S. might collect on average about 19% of GDP in revenue. Some years it goes down a little bit, some years it goes up a little bit. But obviously, we just need to look across the Atlantic Ocean and we see governments that collect a lot more. But here's the thing that most people, especially on the left, don't want to admit. The reason that governments collect more revenue in Europe is not because they're taxing rich people at a higher rate. It's because they are screwing the hell out of ordinary households, uh, not just ordinary households, lower income households. You look at these value added taxes, which average 22 percent in Europe. That's a huge tax on lower income and middle income people. European countries tend to have higher payroll taxes. And what do we know about payroll taxes? They usually begin at dollar one of income. So ordinary and low income people in Europe are getting screwed by those. Not to mention Europe has these very high energy taxes, which, of course, are going to affect low income people and middle income households as well. But if you look at rich people, well, in Europe, they have 
slightly higher personal income tax rates than we do in the U.S., but they also have lower tax rates on things like dividends and capital gains. But, but if you look at sort of overall, the tax burden on rich people in the U.S. and Europe is pretty much the same. It's middle-income and low-income people that finance the European welfare state, and, and they just get just pillaged uh, by those European tax systems, which is one of the reasons why I do not want us to ever make the mistake in the United States of adopting a European-style value-added tax. I mean, because once that happens, I mean, it's game over. Our welfare state will explode in size. There'll be much less incentive on the part of politicians to try to reform entitlements. Uh, and, and uh, you know, heck, at that point in time, I, I'll, I'll just emigrate to Australia or something because I'll just be so depressed at the prospects of saving America. Well, Dan, I looked it up. In England, a single person that earns $63,000 gets hit at 40% for the personal income tax. In, in America, you have to earn five hundred seventy-eight grand to hit our top rate of thirty-seven percent. That's amazing. And 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 consider Denmark as an example. I mean, I think their top tax rate is something like fifty-three percent. And you hit that. Uh, you know, you were talking about forty percent rate on someone in the United Kingdom. It's going to be over fifty percent in Denmark. Uh, so you know, some of these taxes uh, in, in Europe, it's just insanely punitive on ordinary households. Dan, real, we got about a minute. What's going on with tax harmonization? I know it's something you pay attention to. Well, unfortunately, Biden's global corporate minimum tax of 15%, uh, that's made a lot of progress. Uh, now, we haven't quite, and of course, our rate is above that. So the 15% rate doesn't, uh, doesn't, we're not exposed to that. But there is a big fight about the design of the U.S. tax system. And because Biden and Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, are so incompetent, it now looks like because of what Biden's done, we're going to be giving foreign countries the ability to impose much heavier taxes on U.S. multinationals. So the U.S. is going to be a big loser because of Biden's corporate tax harmonization push. Uh, and all this was entirely predictable. Uh, but Biden doesn't care. Janet Yellen doesn't care because they are left-wing ideologues before anything else. Wow. Well, Dan, thank you so much. Ed's going to take you the rest of the way home, but I just want to say thank you. I always love talking with you. It's always great. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at parasage.com. And now a word from our sponsors and Ed's employer, Sage. told me voice america is on twitter follow us at voice america trn sage provides accountants with compliance reporting and analytic solutions to do more for their clients these solutions include education programs such as the sage accountants network client advisory service program this program delivers the tools to create package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. 
Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now you know that for $5 you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back with tax expert Dan Mitchell on The Soul of Enterprise. And Dan, I wanted to, to give you a chance to, 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 to rant a little on a uh, column you, or blog post you did two days ago, Big Business versus Free Enterprise. But by way of introduction, I want to uh, read for our listeners what you call your 11th theorem of government. I assume there are 10 more before this too, right? So the 11th theorem of big government, which is big business is happy to support free enterprise, except when those large firms want handouts, subsidies, protection, and special privileges and bailouts, or when they see a chance to screw small businesses and other competitors with mandates and red tape. I think this has been brought home yet again this week by, the, and again in AI, Sam Altman, who's the head of ChatGPT, saying, you know what, I think we should be regulated. Now that I'm way far in advance in the lead, maybe we should start to regulate this AI thing. So give me your big business. What's the difference between big business versus free enterprise? This is such a critical issue. Uh, I, I, I gave a speech in Poland a couple of weeks ago where I talked about the whole ESG agenda well, the ESG agenda is a way to saddle businesses with costs. But if you're a big business and let's say there's some some mandate that requires 500 hours of managerial time to comply with as a big business with maybe hundreds of lawyers and accountants and compliance pro- professionals. OK, it's an asterisk on your bottom line, but 500 hours of managerial expertise from a small business which might only have you know, five or 10 people uh, that have the skills and ability to deal with it, it's obviously a crippling blow. And we see the same thing, by the way, in, in taxes, uh, where sometimes you get these uh, you know, big business roundtable business round types going up to Congress and piously stating, yes, we think we should have higher taxes. Well, what they're really saying is, let's pull the ladder up, make it hard for new businesses to get started. Because here's the thing to understand. What is the essential feature of capitalism? Well, according to Joseph Schumpeter, it was creative destruction. New technologies, new entrepreneurs coming in and sort of, you know, you know, destabilizing the entrenched powers. Well, if you're a big business, you are an entrenched power. You don't want that creative destruction because you might be the one getting destroyed. So when you become rich, when you become powerful, you want to freeze the economy in place. Now, that might be good for your bottom line, but it's definitely not good for the overall economy. We want, we want the, 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 the creativity, the dynamism that comes with creative destruction, uh, but 
this whole agenda of big business to get in bed with big government, I worry, is one of the biggest dangers we face as an economy. Have you uh, read any of Vivek Ranswamy's book on woke capitalism at all? Are you, you familiar with that? I, I think woke capital is two things. Uh, part of it is probably what we were just talking about, where big businesses figures out, well, you know, let, let's let's cloak it as virtue signaling, but in reality, uh, you know, let's 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 appease the crowd in Washington so they'll pass policies that help us vis-a-vis -vis our small business competitors. But I think part of it is also just cultural. Uh, you know, you have a bunch of uh, you know. You know, woke twenty-year-olds, twenty-somethings uh, that are you know freshly hired by the company, and they have this sort of religious zealotry about uh, uh, wokeism. Uh, you know, the, just the human resources department, which tend to be left-wing anyhow, are, are sort of filtering back up the management chain. Oh, we better make sure we do X, Y, and Z to keep our employees happy. Uh, and we saw that with, of course, Disney. Apparently, Disney got involved with misrepresenting what, what was happening in Florida simply because the, the CEO wanted to appease some of the woke 20-somethings. Well, now look at what's happened to Disney. They, they really stepped in it. Uh, and who knows where that's going to lead. Yeah. And, and you do make a, a really important point in this. It says you're not opposed to big business. You just think that it could be you just want them to be in favor of free enterprise as well. Right. Not just because they're big isn't the problem. Right. Yeah. I, I have no objection to big business, assuming they got big, honestly, assuming they're earning their profits. Honestly, I, I don't want governments to use antitrust laws to try to break them up. I don't want them to be subject to extra heavy taxes or anything like that. If someone if a company gets big or an entrepreneur gets rich because they are providing value to me as a consumer, three cheers for them. Uh, my hat's off to them. But if they wind up using cronyism, bailouts, subsidies, protectionism, uh, if they wind up getting into bed with big government, you know, like the insurance companies that want to bailouts under Obamacare, I mean, that kind of stuff is really nauseating. Now, I don't like it when government redistributes money from the rich to the poor. But you know what gets me 10 times more upset? When the government redistributes money from the poor to the rich. Well, on that and following that theme, do you think now that you know, is there such thing as a bank that is too small to be saved? <laughs> It is very concerning for our economy uh, that we are, in effect, trying to have capitalism without bankruptcy, uh, that we're trying to have an economy where you can take risks and get rewards, but the government's going to bail you out if you have losses. And obviously, in the case of things like Silicon Valley Bank, you know, why does every single depositor, even with millions and millions and millions of dollars at the bank, why do they all get bailed out? But if some small bank fails in Oklahoma, uh, then you wind up having depositors lose money. You know, I, I forget which one of you guys was, was talking earlier about the rule of law. But one of the key principles of the rule of law is that it applies equally to everyone. So a politically connected bank with politically connected depositors should not get more favorable treatment than a small bank that just has small business and agricultural and household depositors. That is morally wrong. In addition, of course, to creating this idea, uh, expanding moral hazard as a problem in our economy. Uh, we want people, if they touch a hot stove, we want them to burn their finger.
It was very telling to see how many uh, right right wing folks who had money in Silicon Valley Bank were all of a sudden, oh, I, I didn't see this sign for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars going into the bank. <laughs> where, where did that come from? Um, anyway, uh, let's let's end. We've got about four, uh, three minutes left. I want to end on a slightly happier note. We had Ian Vasquez on last week and uh, we we talked to him at, at the end of the program about his thoughts on Chile. And um, you wrote a column on this on, on May 8th as well. It looked like it was going down, and now they've seemed to backed up from the precipice a little bit. So talk about your thoughts on what's happening in Chile. Yeah, I went to Chile uh, a couple of years ago when they were having their presidential election, and it was a very sad trip for me because they elected this sort of Bernie Sanders-type candidate, this former student activist, Gabriel Boric. Uh, and he has a horrible agenda to dramatically expand the burden of government, class warfare, taxes, you name it. And one of the agenda items was this idea of uh, sort of happening at the same time was to rewrite Chile's constitution, which was actually sort of like the U.S. Constitution designed to constrain the power of government. Uh, and, uh, and the bad news is, is that they then put this new constitution on the ballot. But the good news is, is that even though they voted for Boric, like a, what, a year later or whatever it was, they rejected overwhelmingly the new constitution. And then most recently, they had a new vote for electing people to try to draw another draft constitution. And the great news is, is that free market people won. So I think the Chilean people, after sort of flirting with this idea of ruining their economy with a Venezuela-style socialism under Boric, now suddenly realize, wait, <laughs> I don't think we want to go down that path. I mean, they look across the Andes, they see what a mess Argentina is. They look north, they see what a mess Venezuela is. So hopefully this is a sign uh, that the Chilean people have sort of come to their senses and uh, and that hopefully Boris will be out of office soon and that Chile can go back to becoming the you know, dynamic free market reformer that has turned it from one of the poorest countries into Latin America to easily now being the richest country. But they have to realize that you know, good results don't just happen organically. They happen because government is not being a big burden. Well, maybe the same thing will happen to us with some kind of Article 5 uh, convention as well. We'll have to see. But let's leave it on that. A, a pretty happy note. Dan Mitchell, thanks so much for being with us today on the Soul of Enterprise. Ron, what do we got coming up next week? Next week, Ed, we're going to talk about Peter Block's new book, Confronting Our Freedom. All right. Sounds great. I'll see you in 157 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes and links where you can read Dan's writing. And also, you can contact Ed or me at askksoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.